there's no time coming in the future where everything is going to line up according to how you want it to be and then stay there. And it doesn't matter how hard you work or how diligent you are or how much you show up for your patients or how much you sacrifice for your children. That time is not coming, nor does it need to, in fact. And as startling and perhaps harsh a reminder that that is, it's actually very freeing because you can then begin to settle internally and to cultivate contentment or joy right away without needing something else first to go right. Rachel, to put it bluntly, if I didn't find a way to distinguish between caring and carrying, and if I didn't commit all the time to infusing my work with joy, I wouldn't still be doing what I'm doing. So it appears perhaps self-indulgent and to a degree, I think it does have to be, but Joyful people have positive effect on the world around them and unjoyful people have destructive effect. And I, I'm not asking anyone to believe that. Go and have a look. Go and have, <laughs> yeah. go and have a Turn look. on your telly. I'm terrible for living in the future. They're thinking, I'll be happy when, if only this happens, etc. But I've realised that this just leads to a deep dissatisfaction with the present moment and I end up wishing my life away. But what if you could find joy right now, even in the most difficult situations you find yourself in? What if you didn't need to wait until you've got your dream job, your colleagues started to behave themselves, or all of your kids were happy? In this episode, I'm speaking with Angela Deutschman, a leadership coach and practitioner who knows how to experience joy despite the ups and downs of life. In this conversation, We talk about why this is so vitally important, especially in the sort of work that professionals in health and social care are doing. And we talk about how to feel joy, even when life is really, really hard. I think this conversation is important for everybody right now, and I certainly learned a huge amount chatting to Angela. So listen, if you want to learn some of the reasons why we think we can't find joy and satisfaction. Listen if you want to understand what's stopping us from experiencing joy right now in the here and now and get some actionable strategies that will start to make a difference right away. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for doctors and other busy professionals in high stress, high stakes jobs. I'm Dr. Rachel Morris, a former GP, now working as a coach, trainer and speaker. Like frogs in a pan of slowly boiling water, many of us don't notice how bad the stress and exhaustion have become until it's too late. But you are not a frog. Burning out or getting out are not your only options. In this podcast, I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts and inviting you to make a deliberate choice about how you will live and work so that you can beat stress and work happier. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash getyourlifeback. It's great to have with me on the podcast today, Angela Deutschman. Now, Angela is a leadership practitioner. She's an Enneagram specialist and she's a life coach. She's got 20 years experience in both corporate practice and private practice. And she's really known for the depth of her work and her particular interest in joy. So welcome to the podcast, Angela. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And hi to everyone who listens in. And we're recording this and it's the British summer and it's the South African winter, but it's exactly the same temperature where we both are. 
yes, and you're in short sleeves and I'm I'm in a sweater. And so <laughs> thinking that our relationship to temperature is completely subjective isn't it totally totally but i just realized i wear the same wardrobe throughout the year it doesn't really matter and you just put a jumper on when you're going out and leave it off in the summer so there we are but hey we have had that heat wave recently and we all completely melted so we've got to rejoice just for the the nice 20 degree temperature yes Anyway, I wanted to get Angela on because Angela does some really, really deep work around finding joy. And one thing that I think is pretty lacking at the moment, particularly for those of us working in healthcare, is joy. And we've done quite a lot of things on the podcast around finding joy at work, having fun at work. But I think, Angela, you go you go really deep into this, this concept of joy. I'd just like, like to start off with how did you even get into all this in the first place, talking about joy. What what led you towards the work that you're doing now? For about the last 20 years, Rachel, particularly in my private practice, I have run retreats and done coaching and really deep processes for thousands of people. And while everybody comes to coaching or healing or inner work for different reasons on the surface, what I started to realize was that the bottom line of human desire is actually always the joy of of experience. Even if the route to that for some might seem to be success or a good relationship with a child or better health or meaning in work, actually, Underneath all those things is, I think, our most powerful driver, which is around creating joy in our experience of being alive. And when you ask people, would you rather be successful or be joyful? Would you rather uh, achieve that or be joyful? The answer is always, in fact, joy. So that got me thinking, well, why don't we understand a little bit more about what's sitting under all these daily drivers? And what if we got a little more sophisticated about and brave about committing to that, which doesn't mean you throw away all those other desires, but you realize what they're all actually for. I mean, I've heard this talked about a lot recently, that actually people would much rather be joyful rather than successful but we often think success is going to bring us joy unfortunately it's 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 probably the other way around we've also talked a lot about happiness at work is there a difference between happiness and joy yes and it may sound a little bit semantic but it really matters to know the difference between happiness and joy happiness i would describe as what you feel when things go the way you want them to. So the kids are balanced and doing well and it's nearly time to go on leave or there's a windfall in your bank account and we feel happy because those are things we we want. And there's nothing at all wrong with happiness. It's wonderful, but it's not in our control. So happiness I would describe as the way you feel when the external world does what you wanted to do and hooray when that happens, but it doesn't always. And it is not controllable altogether. Whereas joy is a quality of self. We could call it a a state a condition perhaps that we bring to our world regardless of whether things are going our way or not we can be committed to our own internal joy and so that is within our control and it is from the inside out whereas happiness is from the outside in And again, nothing wrong with happiness, only that if you only find yourself content and feeling like your life is worth living, 
when you're happy, in other words, when your external environment is doing what you think it should, that's quite disempowered. Yeah, and that's really, really hard. And we've obviously got lots of colleagues with long COVID right now. We've got lots of people with, with workloads that they're finding unmanageable. We've got people with yeah, other health problems of the huge mental health epidemic. And yes, if we waited till that was all okay in our lives to be able to be joyful, then that's, that's really tricky. It's reminding me of the book, I think it's called The Happiness Equation and, and Mo Gordat, who does a podcast. He's the, the, the chief business officer for Google, I think. And he basically came up with the happiness equation, which happiness equals expectations minus reality or reality minus expectations. I can't always get it the wrong way around. I guess your expectations are under your control, but reality is totally not under your control. And much as we try and control our environment and maybe it's slightly easier when we're a bit younger, when we don't have families, and we don't have children that, you know, and, and I know that, that if there's a problem with one of your children, you feel absolutely dreadful. And the, the saying is that you're only as happy as your most miserable child. I think that's so true. If anyone in your family is suffering, you tend to suffer with them. So I love this idea that joy is something innate that is not dependent on circumstance. And that's, that's very spiritual, isn't it? Because I guess most of the world's major religions are all about finding contentment and joy, even in adversity, right? Indeed. And I think it's, it suggests that the, the work is, is, is inward focused as opposed to where we all tend to spend so much of our effort and our energy is on trying to make our outer worlds go the way we think they should go. And we don't want to abdicate that uh, responsibility or withdraw altogether either but again, to recognize that there's, there's no time coming in the future no, where everything is going to line up according to how you want it to be and then stay there. And it doesn't matter how hard you work or how diligent you are or how much you show up for your patients or how much you sacrifice for your children, that time is not coming, nor does it need to, in fact. and as startling and perhaps harsh a reminder that that is, it's actually very freeing because you can then begin to settle internally and to cultivate contentment or joy right away without needing something else first to go right. And as a mom of teenage boys myself, I absolutely recognize the tendency to connect our internal state to that of the people we love, in particular kids, but also patients. And perhaps one really important step that I work a lot with my clients, who many of whom are also carers or in some kind of healthcare profession, is to understand the difference between caring and carrying. In my own profession, I've, I, I really didn't distinguish between those two things probably for the first 10 years. And I reached a point where I, I almost flirted with the idea of stopping doing what I do, stopping working with people in trauma or in you know deep existential crisis, which I tend to do, because the carrying got so heavy and I assumed that that was how it had to be because of the nature of my work. But if we look at the difference again between happiness and joy, and if we get serious and committed to joy, then we look at that same scenario a little differently and we think, okay, how can I do this work without overcompromising my joy. And that's when it hit me that there's a difference between caring and carrying and that I could continue to care and to care a lot without allowing the carrying of other people's suffering to 
compromise or jeopardize my joy to such an extent that that it was leading me to think whether I could even continue providing that service. So how does that work then? How, how did you work out how to care without carrying that with you? One of the really helpful things for me, and you, you referred to it a little earlier, is a, a personality profiling tool, to put it at its most bland, called the Enneagram, which came into my life quite a long time ago and alerted me to some of my automatic internal assumptions. And the Enneagram type that I am has the tendency to get status or ego kicks from helping and giving. And so once I became alert to that, that really helped me to recognize that it was entirely possible to care and care deeply, which I do, without trying to be the rescuer or the savior of all my clients. And the Enneagram alerted me to the fact that I I may well have been erring on that side. So that was one tool that helped me deeply. The second tool that across my life has been of extraordinary value in figuring these things out has been meditation and in particular a kind of guided meditation practice that really has got me deep enough into my own patterning to be able to see it. Hmm. So that's really interesting and I'd love to ask you a bit more about the this deep inner work, this this patterning in in a second, but just quickly going back to the the Enneagram profile, and you're saying that obviously it's an Enneagram two, the giving yes. is part of your motivation. And I was actually when you were saying earlier, I'm an Enneagram seven, and so fully focused on the future and having fun and avoiding pain and all that sort of stuff. And then so when you were saying, you know, if you wait until everything is fine all your kids are entirely happy, or your life is going exactly the way you you want it to be, to be happy, that day's never gonna come. And that was that's really difficult for me to hear. I'm like, ah, oh, that, but that's, I'm, I guess that's where I live. It's in the future, this is what we could do. These are ideas and yeah. the future has to be bright and happy and joyful. And so to hear that actually you've gotta be able to find the joy even when it is, painful and as an Enneagram seven, that's that's more difficult. I guess I struggle less with the the carrying of people's yes. pain. Is that is that quite typical for the different different numbers on the Enneagrams? Oh you've you've hit it on the head. It's exactly that. And that's why having some kind of familiarity with your own tendencies is so valuable. You've just illustrated it because you could recognize how triggered you were by the statement, there's no sustainable future with, with naught challenge and naught pain and where everything's fun forevermore. <laughs> and uh, you could recognize your own trigger and you could realize also that that's particularly your response to that truth. And if it's your response to that truth, then you also have the ability to interrogate it and perhaps not to be at the mercy of that response if you don't want to. And to go just a little further than to reject or to to overreact, which is what Enneagram understanding offers us. Yeah. And if anyone's interested in the Enneagram, we did a an episode a while back with Annie Hannicombe just going through the different numbers of the Enneagram. So understanding yourself, understanding your triggers is quite is quite important. But that second thing you said was about the meditation and doing the inner work so that you do this this mentioned programming of your mind. Is it pro- can you say a little bit more about how that works? Yes. And there's lots of insight into this part of ourselves from various disciplines. But the bottom line is that all of us, usually before the age of seven, uh, bump into the world in a difficult way in one form or another. Sometimes it's real trauma and threat for, you know, for certain people. 
But even for those who, who wouldn't look back at their childhood and consist anything particularly hard, nonetheless, we all run into negative messaging from the world, even with the most well-intentioned and loving caregivers or the safest environment. And what we do then, and it's quite genius, is that we create defense mechanisms to keep safe and to survive in the face of what, as a child, can appear very, very threatening. It may not have been actually threatening, but at the age of four, you can't really discern, can you, between something that is very seriously a risk for you or just a bad mood of your mum on one day. We can't make those distinctions. And so when we run into frightening or critical, any form of negative messaging about ourselves, we create a program to help us cope as best we can at that age. For some people, the program like mine is to become super pleasing to everyone because that then feels safe. And if I'm being helpful and if I'm even indispensable to people, well, then I'm going to be included in the tribe and people will look after me as an example. But other programs look entirely different. Some people go exactly the opposite way and they get really tough. And they, they say, well, I'm not going to be hurt again by anyone because I'm not going to let anyone in to my heart in the first place. So I'll push everyone away. I'll be very displeasing because that's safer. So your programming or your particular unique set of defenses or strategies for handling what you had to handle in the first stage of your life sets in very, very deeply. The earlier they occur, the deeper they set in. And those programs don't live, Rachel, unfortunately, they don't live in our intellectual minds. They're not sitting in the frontal cortex. They are sitting in what people refer to as the unconscious mind. And so you need if you want to rewire or reprogram those strategies well or deeply, you need to be able to set aside your analytical mind a little bit or at least turn the volume down so that you can heal or that you can release programs that might really be in the way of your joy but are quite internalized and almost irrational because you know, when you're 45 and you've lived in the world a bit and you've got even just a hint of some capability and support system, then the your fears as a four-year-old don't sound rational anymore, but they are still at play. That's what we mean by programming. That is so interesting. What sorts of programs and programming have you noticed people have as their defense mechanisms in their subconscious? What have you recognized in clients over the years? I would say one of the, the most common ones, certainly amongst the people that land up in my practice, is a completely overdeveloped sense of responsibility, as in, it's on me to make this all go well. It's on me to make my children happy. It's on me to, to ensure that my patients recover. It's on me. That is a it is a very common one, at least in my circles. And it is a defense because it's a way, I mean, it's totally false, but it is at least an illusion of control. But that very illusion of control causes more damage than, than anything else. So the the reach for control is one of the most common I, I see, not the only one by any means, but a very common one. And so that reaching for control, in order to get control, you then take the responsibility on because you can't control other people, but you know you can control yourself. And so you think, right, then I, then I ought to. And this is what we hear time and time again in all the work that we do, talk about stories in your head. It's that I should... 
I ought to, if I don't do it, who else is going to do it? I'm the only one that can do it. And those, those stories that even if I guess some people would say, well, they are actually true stories in, in the head, which we can always, which we can always question. But if you literally are the only doctor in the practice and you've got 20 patients that want to see you, it does appear to be very true and it might actually be true. So how do you cope with reprogramming that defense mechanism when all your external circumstances are saying to you, it's the right way to react. It's right. It's true. I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole, and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Rachel, actually, the newest research, and a lot of this comes from, well, they're various contributors, but one of the most remarkable, in my view, has been the neuroscientist Joe Dispenza, who suggests to us that the program comes first and the reality follows and not the other way around. And that's quite a big statement, but bear with me for a moment, that we almost, and this is, this is his language, we can become so addicted to, for example, the feeling of being in control or being the one who steps up or being responsible or suffering even, as odd as it sounds, we can become so habituated to feeling that way, that we land up partially creating those circumstances again and again and again around us to give us the reason to keep on feeling that way. So the work that I do and many others is to say, what if we what if we change the programming first? What if we, bit by bit by bit, alleviate that habitual internal state? What if we put the location of the work there as opposed to trying to change the external environment? Because as you rightly say, when you are looking through a particular pair of glasses, you are going to say, it can't be any other way. But that might be the the fault of the glasses and not necessarily the only way things can be. And if you want to challenge yourself on that, which I would suggest, is ask yourself the question, is there any single other person in the world who loves to do what I love to do but manages to do it in another way that that isn't like this. Because if there's one example of that, then you can begin to recognize that there may well be other options, but within a certain particular of lenses, you, you won't and can't be expected to be able to see another way. So what, the focus of my work, and it's not the only way, of course, to make progress in one's life, but the focus of my work is on what is that pair of glasses you're wearing and how could we perhaps take them off, even though people will fight kicking and screaming. As much as our lens makes us suffer, we also get very attached to it and want to fight to keep it on. Yeah, it's quite confronting, isn't it? If you suddenly got to take off the way that you've been saying the world. And also, I guess that also means that you can blame how things are on external circumstances and the world. Then suddenly it's, it's actually, it's actually down to you. And that, that becomes, that becomes a lot trickier. It does, but I would hop in here quite 
sternly and say that blame is very, very unhelpful here, even if we start to say, okay, it's on me, it's my fault. I absolutely am not suggesting that we just transfer blame from the external environment to the self because blame lowers our, in our sense of joy, as is obvious. And the lower your energy, the less likely you're able to elevate your perspective. So we don't think about blame because it's not that. Is it your fault that you developed those strategies? No. Is it your mom's fault that you developed those strategies? No, not if you look at what her experience was before. Where's the actual blame? It isn't, it isn't there. But blame is distinct from responsibility. And responsibility is quite empowering. So, yes, the responsibility is on us to create lives of joy. I, I would say that. But there's no blame in the mix. I love that because blame just brings shame as well, doesn't it? And shame is such a destructive, destructive thing. And yeah. I think a lot of people working in healthcare do feel the shame that they can't get themselves sorted out or the shame that they might have got into the these difficult habits. So, yeah. Angela, so we talked about this reprogram. What do you actually do to do that? How can you reprogram because these are so deeply ingrained ways of practicing i'm presuming that literally it can't happen overnight it's got to be a process right (laughs) i'd love to say yes rachel and nine times out of ten it is yes but but it tends to be a combination of repeated new exposure i'll explain what that is as well as intense or immersive experiences which can be quite instantaneous so it's a combination of changing the internal programming by regular you know fairly boring daily reminder as well as the option to have quite powerful big experiences that are the opposite of what your programming is, okay? But to do deep reprogramming, we need to be engaging with that part of our mind, which is actually also a certain part of the brain, as it turns out. And so we need to be able to slow down or calm down the analytical, verbal, intellectual mind enough so that we can work with the the unconscious or that really that child's mind that is sitting underneath the intellectual, grown-up, logical, rational self. And there are multiple ways to do that. Hypnotherapy is one thing that does that. It just, all it does is it just, it just puts the analytical mind in a, in a, in a sofa for a little while. Like you relax there, you take a break, you, you're off this afternoon, which is often met with resistance, of course, but we can do it. And then we can work with the more suggestible part of the mind underneath. But the kind of meditation that I've learned from Joe Dispenza does that actually just in lighter ways. So there are, there are meditation technologies that now with the new neuroscience understanding we've developed in the last 10 years include things like particular kind of sound, particular pronunciation of words, certain music and beats that we know help quiet that analytical mind. And then when it's, it never goes completely away, nor does it need to, but when it's relaxing on the sofa in the background, then we can begin to expose that unconscious mind to another way. 
And you can do that through visioning or mental rehearsal or tapping into your heart and feeling gratitude. Now, these things don't work so well when the analytical mind is still hammering on. It doesn't believe it. It doesn't, it'll reject it. So uh, I'm very interested in my practice at the moment to work with people in that space where that analytical mind is 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 on the on the lowdown so that we can work with what's under there the the plant medicine work does exactly the same thing or any technology really that allows you to rest in a safe way that logical part of the self so it's getting into a state where yes you can park that that left brain chatter and you can access access some of the deeper stuff which is yeah i guess things like mindfulness based stress reduction that sort of thing can that also help or does it need to be something slightly different yes it can as long as you are doing two things the calming is one piece and so that's really always where we start because relaxation is actually what gives that analytical mind permission to sit on the sofa for a little bit and not push in. So yes, any tactic that allows you to breathe more deeply, so breath work or mindfulness or, you know, walking your dog in the, in the field, same, but relaxation is only the first piece. It's valuable on its own. And if you want to stop there, it's still very helpful for wellness. But what we're talking about here requires another piece. And that means giving that unconscious mind another truth. It landed on a truth long ago and it hooked there. And there's no blame for that. And in fact, it may even have served you to use those strategies you've been using. You know, being a people pleaser has really helped me to listen carefully and to work with my heart open, for example. But it gets to the point, the moment it starts to compromise your own joy, then it's you've outgrown it. And you are then quite ready to let that defense system go. So, You need then, when you're very relaxed, you need to do a second piece, which is to show that part of your mind another way, another truth, which you now are so well positioned to do because you're a grown-up and because you do know better. you You can, in that very relaxed, suggestible state, you can bring up a preferred state you can tune into it. You can envision it. That is, after all, what hypnotherapy does, isn't it? You know, the, you relax deeply and then the hypnotherapist will, will offer new behavior into the mind at that point. But we don't need hypnotherapy to do that. We can do it ourselves. It's exactly, Rachel, what athletes do when they mentally rehearse before big games. It's not anything different from that. You are quietening the mind to the point where it is fairly suggestible. And then you you envision what it is that you'd like to create or to experience or to, to be. And it's not about controlling the external environment. It's about envisioning yourself in a certain state. And the more you do that, the more that unconscious self begins to recognize an alternative. But it can also happen as people report on plant medicine journeys or when they've had a a big, beautiful breakthrough conversation with a spouse, maybe sometimes a whole new way can land powerfully. And I, I like to catch them both. Yeah. Wow. That, that's wonderful. And of course, everyone's going, right, how can I do the quick one? How can I do the quick one? And there's all sorts of stuff out there that, that's coming out and evidence about all that sort of plant plant medicine stuff as well. If, if people were to 
want to try doing this for themselves so they need to have some sort of guide in terms of the meditation bit and then envisaging a new a new reality or can they just do that themselves are there particular exercises that you might get people to do places where they could start even thinking about that yes you've got all these capacities yourself really in fact children do this often quite naturally when they daydream or they do imaginative play because this is the faculty that we use is imagination you know to activate states in yourself that your external environment doesn't yet make logical so you you've got to be able to activate imagination so on the most basic level a daydreaming experience that you can do in whatever way is wonderful for you is a very good place to start but remember there are two components the one is the relaxation piece to the point where you feel here's the litmus test you need to feel you need to get to the point where you're like you would say you're a little bit spacey like just you haven't lost control you totally know where you are you know you've still got your normal faculties going beautifully but you are so relaxed that the thoughts aren't as fast they're still there but they're not so fast they're not so insistent they're not so furious and you feel little spacey by the way we are programmed to love that state why do you think we drink or use sugar or any of the things we do because we love it when our minds slow down a little and we get a bit more relaxed we we need it we're wired for those experiences in in my view so in whatever way you can do that but then don't forget the second part which is to bring to mind as powerfully as you can in your imagination but also your heart is to envision what it is about yourself that you would love to experience so to imagine yourself confident perhaps for the meeting you've got tomorrow or patient with your child or a little more joyful in your practice we want to activate these states internally that's what we said earlier the joy really is an internal job because then you're bringing a slightly different self aren't you you're bringing a little bit of a different energy into your same old life and things change they really do over time in response to someone bringing another energy into their same old life mm. but i would really encourage folks who feel resonant with this or really committed to investigate the the meditations of Joe Dispenza those are certainly in all my career I've never encountered a more powerful technology for this if i ever do i'll use that so uh, it's it's not a it's not some sort of loyalty uh, except that i'm very loyal to whatever i see has the greatest impact on my clients and without question it's the guided meditations of of Joe Dispenza so we talked a lot about this sort of inner work the the changing your internal state where does the analytical bit come in in terms of changing the stories that are running through your head or do you think actually once you manage to change the internal stuff the stories will automatically change or is there something around looking at the reality what's true and and changing that it's a great question because i think we always want an integrated approach we want to use all our faculties including our analytical mind which has a wonderful important vital role to play so there's there's the reprogramming of the unconscious mind which we've talked about but that's got to be followed up by catching yourself when you find that you are reverting to 
old stories or past programming that that causes you suffering. And you will revert. You know, these things aren't actually neural pathways. They're laid down in the brain. So in all likelihood, it's going to be a bit of a two steps forward, one step back relationship to changing this. And that's great. No problem with that. But you do need to stop yourself or catch yourself when you begin to notice that you're running back down, for example, oh, I'm confusing caring with carrying. Okay, there I'm doing it again. All right, no problem, because if we're going to blame at that point again, can I repeat that blame causes your energy to go lower? That's exactly the opposite of what we're going for here. So it's of no value to us. So not judgment or criticism, but very high self-noticing. And so, you know, certainly for me, I do still slip into that carrying piece. I know it's ego for me, as I explained earlier. So I find it quite helpful to stop myself and say, you know what, you don't have to open up a 7pm appointment on a weekend. Like, watch, you know, watch what that does to your internal state. Because if I'm, if I'm doing something from an ego state, as opposed to a joy state, I usually don't like the outcome it creates anyway, I'm not at my best. So that's the place for the analytical mind. Put it to work. It's wonderful at noticing and having an opinion. Make it work for you in terms of catching yourself back in an old pattern. And then you just gently say, okay, stop. And I'm going to return to, now this is where you need to have something else to go to, right? If you're trying to change a neural pathway, you can't just do it by saying, hey, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Try that, guys. That will be a spectacular failure. The only way we can do this is to be seduced off our old patterning into something more appealing. That's the only way in my experience that we rebuild. It's not enough to just say, I mustn't do this. It's not enough. You need something more appealing, more seductive to turn your attention towards. And that is the thing that you've envisioned around what, what you would prefer. Oh, I get it now. So you've done that internal work. You've sort of envisaged what it's like to have joy, to feel relaxed. to, to And felt to, it, to, by the way. You've okay. got to feel it. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that, that's helpful. So that when your ego, your analytical mind is what I think of as the ego that's that right the that that that, that yeah. analytical analytical sense of self starts to want to do things or starts with those internal stories you can't just go right stop and stop into a vacuum you go stop and let's go to that other state that i've already practiced exactly. and that i already know what that feels like so i've got i've got somewhere to go with that right? exactly even if all it allows you to do is to catch yourself in a trigger and you're about to go back to the old program, and even if all you can do is just relax at that moment, just relax because you've practiced that now. And practice is a really good word that you threw in there because uh, we call it, of course, a meditation practice or any, any technology you may want to use. And that is what it's for. We practice feeling calm, being relaxed. We practice what it's like to engage with maybe a very challenging patient, but in a peaceful way. We've practiced it mentally before, and so we have something to reach to. But even though you can have very big, intense experience in multiple ways, it is also going to require repetition. Don't be impatient or put off. But we know for sure now that our brains are plastic. It's one of the most exciting times in my view to be alive because the old stories of you're just born this way or if you work in these kind of conditions, that's the only way you can be. That's not true anymore because neuroplasticity is now a completely accepted reality. We can change our brains. They're wonderful. They change. Yeah. 
I think the the problem with that is, like you said, it takes time, it takes repetition, it takes practice. And most of us want this really quick fix into how we can do this and how we can how we can do that. And, you know, because in today's culture, we're used to being able to just order something and it come the next day or, or, or download it straight. And so this takes time and it takes work. And you've got to put in time and headspace and maybe invest a little bit of money and, and all that all that stuff but i think if we knew what the potential outcome would be it'd be pretty much worth it the meditation program i run is five months long and that's from years and years of tweaking and and changing that because that to me feels like the amount of time we need to really bed down a, a practice that for sure our egos are going to resist so that we know and we build it in and we make room for it and we laugh about it. But that's how long my, my introductory program takes working together, starting at the beginning and laying down these new pathways just to make it real. I think that five months is the, you know, a minimum amount for the establishment of a really sustainable new practice, not just dipping in to the Headspace app for a couple of minutes. You know, I don't mean that. I really mean committing to making your internal state more powerful than your external circumstances. That's the bottom line here, and we can do it. Yeah, I guess that is the secret to finding contentment and joy through through all circumstances, no matter what's going on. And how how long do people meditate for then each week? How many sessions are are there each week on a five month program like that? We start fairly small, but we do have a program that has got something at least daily. Because to, to bed down the basic commitment of withdrawing from life, even just sometimes it's just for the duration of one song. So we begin really small, but build the habit of taking your attention away from your circumstances so you can put it on your own state. Uh, and as simple as that sounds, it's not for the majority of Western adults, but we've got something every day, even teeny bits, but we build up, I don't want to frighten your listeners, but we build up every group every time to being able to hold meditations of well over an hour. And at the end, people are asking me, where are their longer ones? Mm. And these are people, professionals always with executives to, you know, with very busy lives, but somehow, Time can be elastic when, we, when we've begun to make our own state a priority. Somehow, you know, you, the way you fi- always find time to just watch that one Netflix episode of whatever you're binging on, you can squeeze it in and the same approach applies. Yeah, definitely. I, I've certainly been watching far too much Love Island at the moment, which I don't know if you have Love Island <laughs> South Africa, but oh my gosh, what a waste of, what a waste of brain power and space and time that is. So, I mean, I... I'm really interested in all this, you know, these meditation courses. I'd certainly encourage any of the listeners to, to check these out. We'll put links to your program, if that's okay, in, in the show notes and links to the, the Joe Dispenser stuff. What I'd love to know, though, is, is for people that would love to consider this in the future, but at the moment are just a little bit overwhelmed, feeling that, oh, crumbs, even five minutes a day of anything is going to be tricky. Are there any quick wins that you've got because i know we talked about the ego being really threatened by joy and i know when we've spoken before this podcast you're talking to me about how people really do self-sabotage their own joy quite a lot what are the quick choices that we can make to choose joy over the well i guess the alternative is is stress and and anxiety suffering struggle and suffering Are, are there any sort of consistent things that you find that your clients do do that that make a big difference one useful way to think about it is to consider your joy as a muscle i think that's a really good metaphor because as you would immediately recognize it's not good for us to make muscles strong 
by overdoing things or, you, you know, you're not going to get your muscles strong by running 10 kilometers on your first day of training. In fact, you're likely to do damage. So think about your own joy as a muscle and where you might be with that could be different from where I am or anyone else. And it's not because some people are just inherently blessed or inherently lucky. It's everyone has the muscle and you can choose to what degree you want to exercise it. And the stronger it is, the more it can serve you and the more it can do for you and the more likely you'll be able to access it. But with that in mind, what I would encourage is for you to take a micro view on building up your joy to start. Aside from all the internal work and reprogramming we've talked about, take tiny little opportunities, the smaller the better in your everyday life, to just make a little switch up in, in joy. So that can be as small as deciding that you are going to put something more colorful on your desk or wash your curtains because they're a little gloomy or walk outside during your lunch hour for you know five minutes, actually sit on the grass or play a very amazing piece of music to yourself while you're doing your emails or you know, add some crunch to your normal old salad, whatever it may be, just dial the joy up one degree. And really that is possible for everyone, for everyone in the tiniest little micro way, start to get used to choosing joy where you can see it's possible. I know there are many areas you think it's not possible. And for those, we need big muscles but let's just start with the small ones so that you acclimatize to joy so that you begin to make friends with it and not see it as something that only can happen if when you retire or if that child finally starts studying or whatever it is. If you think about joy in that sort of distant mega sense, where, you know, it's very difficult to build a muscle that way. Let's build it in a micro tiny daily way and see where it goes wow gosh Angela I, mean, I could keep talking to you about this for hours on end but we really really are out of time and there's just yes. so much in it I think we're gonna have to get you back if that's okay at some point to talk about to talk about this more I just think this is such an important message for people this not waiting until everything's okay until the workload is manageable until I'm in the right job until my family is sorted until we've got enough funding until this until that because you will be waiting forever and I think one of the the criticisms of all this stuff and the criticism I get a lot from my, my work and what I'm talking about is that this is really self-indulgent you know this is all very it's all very nice it's all about feeling feeling good but what about all those people that can't do this or or whatever but i i sincerely believe that people who have more joy in their life who are more joyful will be better at what they're doing rachel to put it bluntly if i didn't find a way to distinguish between caring and carrying and if i didn't commit all the time to infusing my work with joy, I wouldn't be do I wouldn't still be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So it appears perhaps self-indulgent and to a degree, I think it does have to be. But joyful people have positive effect on the world around them. And unjoyful people have destructive effect. And I, I'm not asking anyone to believe that. Go and have a look. Go and have, <laughs> yeah. go and have a look. Tell on your telly. Go and have a look. Who, you know, who bullies, who hurts, who's mean, you know, who's greedy, and you're not going to find authentically joyful states behind destructive impact. And the reverse is also true. I recognize that it's a real risk to place attention and resources on your on yourself when the need feels so great out there. But challenge that logic a little bit more and go and have a look at where the deeply truthful, sustainable blessings come from. Wow. I think we need to end there. I 
That is so wonderfully put, Angela. Thank you so much. If people want to find out a little bit more about you, about your work, about your courses, where can they go to do that? The joystudio.co.za or the Joy Studio page on Facebook. My children tell me I am so behind the times to still have a Facebook page, but there you go. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so website or Facebook and presumably people can contact you via there as well. Of course. Great. And then, and then maybe perhaps in the next couple of years, we could organize some sort of joy retreat or something that people can, can come and book on and come and experience some of this themselves. That would be wonderful. 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 Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Really great to speak to you. And we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, we provide a self-coaching CPD workbook for every episode. You can sign up for it via the link in the show notes. And if this episode was helpful, then please share it with a friend. Get in touch with any comments or suggestions at hello at youarenotafrog.com. I love to hear from you. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you're listening. It really helps. Bye for now.